Before we get to today's show, just a quick reminder that you can get the most comprehensive digest of China-Africa news delivered daily to your email inbox. Try it out at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by the China Africa Project's managing editor, Kobus van Staden from Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about the environment again. It's an issue that we are trying to focus more attention on. Normally, what we've been doing over the past year is talking about specific issues related to deforestation, also illegal fishing, wildlife trade, and whatnot. But today we're going to add in a dose of geopolitics, in part because just the moment that we're in where the pieces on the chessboard are moving right now as it comes to geopolitics, especially with what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. Now, going back to last year with the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, there have been a number of conferences and high-level summits between Africa and the outside world, and energy, sustainability have all been key themes in these various what they call Africa Plus One summits. And going back to FOCAC, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, sustainable energy was a very, very prominent theme that came out of that. In fact, Kobus, you remember they actually issued a 10-point climate change declaration at the end of the conference, which was the first time they've ever done that. And that just highlights the growing importance of both climate change and renewable energy in the China-Africa relationship. But the Chinese have cut back a lot of funding for traditional fossil fuel energy. We all remember last was last spring when Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping announced at the United Nations that China would no longer fund coal projects overseas. That threw a wrench into a number of projects in Zimbabwe and South Africa. There has been a shift to more sustainable energy projects, both in terms of private investment from the Chinese in Africa, but also from the policy banks as well. Fast forward into 2022 and the Europe-Africa summit where sustainable energy was also a very prominent theme, and it's been a key tenet of the Biden administration's Build Back Better World Initiative as well. So lots of discussion about sustainable energy in Africa's relationship with the great powers and the outside world. However, though, it's a little bit rich. I'll even go so far as to say hypocritical for some of these global North actors to be talking to Africa and placing so much emphasis on sustainable energy and renewable energy in places like Africa when they themselves at home are not doing it. Let's take a look at the energy mixes in some of these places, just so, again, you can see the discrepancy between what they're saying and what they actually do themselves. In the United States, of course, the United States being the number one oil and gas exporter in the world today, 78% of the energy that they consume is from fossil fuels. In Europe, it's a very similar story. 71% come from fossil fuels. And in Japan, Kobus, your former stomping grounds, 88% 
of the energy mix is from fossil fuels, a lot of oil and coal that's being used there, especially after they shut down their nuclear initiatives after Fukushima. Now, it's Australia that is very interesting. Coal alone counts for 75% of the country's electricity generation. Now, when we look at emissions, the situation is even more stark, where China and OECD countries account for a whopping 65% of the world's total carbon dioxide output, and Africa's share is just 3.2%. So that really highlights the discrepancy between what's going on in the global north and actually what's happening in Africa. So I think we have to keep that in mind when we talk about the geopolitics of energy here. Now, this issue came up also last year at the COP26 summit in Glasgow. And if you recall Greta Thunberg, who's the young woman who's been very effective at raising awareness about the risks of climate change and really putting pressure on senior policy stakeholders to to take action on this, she is advocating for a complete ban on fossil fuels And that got a lot of pushback from African stakeholders who said, you know what, we only contribute 3.2% to global emissions output. We need these, uh, these fossil fuels, particularly natural gas, in order to advance our own economies. Don't cut us off now just as we are starting to grow, especially now in this post-COVID recovery period where, again, fuel and energy are becoming increasingly costly. And it was interesting that we got some pushback to Greta Thunberg from Rwanda's environment minister, Jean-Dac Mujawamira, and she said something very interesting, Kobus, that I thought was worth mentioning today. She said, in response to Greta, they're just complaining just for complaining. And we haven't heard that kind of pushback on environmental activists from the likes of an environment minister in Africa before. And I think it shows a growing impatience. That being said, we all know we have to get to more sustainable energy solutions. But the path that Africa takes and the path that Europe and the United States and other global north regions take are going to be very, very different. And one has to acknowledge the somewhat blatant hypocrisy that appears to be in the message from the global north. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, kind of, we've been sounding off about that for a long time. Um, I mean, I have to admit, I have very little sympathy actually for the Rwandan minister's comment because people aren't just complaining to be complaining. You know, kind of like if you, if you look at the at the, the newest uh, climate report that the UN released, I think last week, it's an emergency. You know, and it's it's particularly an emergency in you know kind of in places like South Africa where the grid is now in such a state that I'm literally if if I disappear from this podcast halfway through that's why like because because there's been rolling kind of blackouts kind of hitting the country this whole week um, and at the same time the country is South Africa is now running on diesel um, which is extremely expensive even more polluting than coal and incredibly you know kind of inefficient and yet here we are you know so so in that sense like the, this kind of narrative from African politicians that oh this is just this is just some kind of woke you know kind of activism coming from the north is laughable at the same time the the you know kind of the the insistence i think from 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 many kind of global north actors that that because 
you know, kind of, you know, that, that, that natural gas has to be kind of taken off the table for African actors, even as the global north is still have heavily dependent on it, is also laughable. And particularly, I think, you know, kind of where if, if we're looking at the situation in Ukraine, if Europe had managed, uh, you know, kind of an energy transition that have that would have kind of weaned themselves off of gas and oil, we wouldn't have the situation in Ukraine as we have now. So, you know, kind of so, so it's, it's a kind of a situation where, where everyone kind of ends up looking very bad. And let's now dive into this. And there was a paper that came out recently from the European Center for Development Policy Management in Brussels that speaks exactly to these issues, the geopolitics of African renewable energy, European and Chinese investments in a global green transition. It was written by Alfonso Medinia, Katya Sergeyev, and Yanatu Domingo. And we are thrilled to have Alfonso, who is the head of climate and green transition at ECDPM, to join us on the show for the first time from Brussels, a very good afternoon to you, Alfonso. Thank you very much, Eric. It's an honor to be here. It's really wonderful to have you. I know you've been a subscriber of ours for quite some time, and also your paper is really just timely right now, especially because of the shifting geopolitics. We've talked about some of the inconsistencies from China and the Europeans on these issues of sustainable energy and renewable energy. Let's just get a big overview of the geopolitics of it and help us kind of set the board as I, you know, we're using the metaphor of the chessboard, help us set the board of where the various actors are when it comes to renewable energy as you laid it out in your paper. Thank you. No, that's that's a it's a big question because we're we're actually what we tried to do was look at what are the interests of uh, European actors and Chinese actors across the entire continent of uh, of Africa and and it's, it's of course very difficult to say these are the geopolitical uh, lines but in in general I think what what we tried to do was capture a bit this sort of sense of anticipation that exists around African renewable energy uh, and specifically looking at, at how Europeans uh, view potential future market opportunities uh, in Africa. What we see is that that renewable energy is now no longer seen as a development challenge or a persistent development challenge, but also an incredible future opportunity for Europe, uh, as well as China, as well as the US to market their technology abroad and to invest in a rapid uh, increase in renewable energy capacity and, uh, and electrification uh, of Africa. The reality is that right now, or at least my feeling is that that this sort of sense of geopolitical competition for uh, those opportunities is somewhat overblown in the face of the sheer sort of needs that you have in terms of uh, electricity uh, and energy access and energy development on uh, on the African continent. So our paper, what it tried to do was was try to nuance a bit this competition narrative and 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 try to point where really the the sort of major challenges are. And I think what what we do see is that there's there's sort of a a big ambition from the European side as well as the the the, uh, the American side to try and get back into that infrastructure uh, finance uh, in Africa, very much focusing on uh, on green energy. Uh, but in practice, we're, we're, we're certainly not there yet. So uh, right now we have lots of uh, declarations of intent. There's a degree of, of finance that is already being committed through um, sort 
of flagship projects. But again, we're, we're still talking about, I would say, a scattering of uh, Western financed projects across the, across the African continent. And this, this sort of statement of intent to really significantly increase and try to leverage private finance to, to actually power that shift to towards a green economy. I think at the same time where when when you look at China and, and you've covered that so well in uh, with the China Africa project, energy finance from China in uh, in the past decades has been uh, incredibly significant for Africa. But at the same time, as mostly focused on uh, fossil fuels or uh, sort of large-scale debt-financed infrastructure. When we're talking about renewable energy, uh, what we see is that there is indeed that shift and that um, clear move from uh, Chinese uh, investment to also try and, 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 and get into green energy and green energy infrastructure. But again, we're still very much at the start. The, the way that I would see it is that the anticipation of that geopolitical um, competition for renewable energy opportunities right now uh, is, is, is more sort of present or more apparent than, than the actual um, sort of competition uh, in practice. So the the, pa- the paper is really really interesting to read, and and um, and it makes the point that um, that you know in the rhetoric that we're seeing from the EU, there's all of this competition language. You know, so like uh, like you know, kind of trying to to trying to counter China, or trying to oppose China, or trying to kind of replace China, but in reality. You know, kind of the two actually, the EU and and China um, in the African space actually actually work more in parallel. Um, wh- what do you mean when you when you say they work in parallel? So this is really about looking back at how uh, energy investment or energy infrastructure investment has um, has happened ac- uh, across the African continent. And, and in a way, when, when you look at how the EU has, has approached this uh, in a number of African countries, and certainly not, not everywhere, um, is really trying to um, use that model of leveraging private finance using, uh, using public finance and applying that to uh, independent power producer uh, schemes and sort of working within um, an overall environment of trying to reform the energy system to uh, work in a more uh, liberalized, uh, liberalized way. And that has sort of steered it towards working on um, uh, smaller scale uh, renewable uh, energy um, energy projects. When you look at the Chinese investment, historically, it's been much more about uh, large scale uh, EPC engineering uh, procurement and construction contracts uh, financed with um, with sovereign debt, which uh, in in the past has really focused on uh, on on fossil fuel capacity, but also interconnections. Sort of the big. Uh, backbone infrastructure of uh, centrally managed uh, energy systems. So I think in, in that sense, there's been a degree of um, there's been a degree of working in, in in parallel, even though there has has been significant uh, significant overlap and even uh, in, in in some cases, sort of uh, uh, collaboration between uh, between the two. Uh, but I think I think the, the sort of the, the situation that that we're that we're in right now is that 
Whereas that is the history of uh, of EU and Chinese energy investment in, in in Africa, the future is going to be uh, quite fundamentally different. And with both uh, Chinese uh, and European actors uh, very much focusing on 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 trying to uh, green also uh, their their infrastructure finance in uh, in, in in the energy domain. There will be uh, a lot more overlap. And I think, from from an African point of view, or at least from from many African uh, countries, the the challenge I think in in terms of rapidly increasing because I mean there is that sense of uh, sense of urgency that 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 you all know and that you also alluded to, Cobus, in, in terms of in terms of filling the gaps in tr- uh, of of installed capacity. There's also a sense that is going to require a lot of uh, sort of private finance and a very different uh, way of, of, of managing uh, managing energy systems, and that um, I'd say the, the huge major infrastructure projects that China has financed in uh, in the past may not be coming back in the same way as uh, as as we've seen them uh, we've seen them in the past so i think i think there there's, there's going to be much more of a convergence in terms of uh, in terms of the models and this the simple sort of explanation is also if you look at, at renewable energy renewable energy systems are uh, necessarily more uh, more modular uh, and more distributed and based on on sort of smaller scale um, smaller scale generation capacity that that requires a very different way of, of governing them it also requires a very different way uh, of, of, of financing them uh, and I think that that is where where both European and, and, and Chinese finance is going to have to uh, have to focus on. Well, we've talked about the drop-off in Chinese finance. Uh, There's word that came out this week that the European Union is going to start issuing some new bonds to pay for uh, the events that are unfolding in Eastern Europe and in Ukraine. So I think it begs the question as to whether or not the Europeans are going to be committed to paying up to $150 billion for the global gateway. I'm sorry, 150 billion euros, about $170 billion dollars for the Global Gateway Initiative that was announced by Ursula von der Leyen, who's the European Commission president last year. The world has changed now. So your paper talks about the Global Gateway a lot, but your paper was obviously written before Russia invaded Ukraine. And now we're facing a situation where Europe is facing the largest war on the continent since World War II. It's going to cost billions of dollars in new military to deal with migrants, the largest refugee crisis in 75 years. And it just seems to me, just by looking at these things, that in the past, when these kinds of of traumatic big world events happen in the name of wars and other things like that, that Europe takes its eye off of Africa. And the United States does as well. Do you get the sense right now that Europe will remain as committed to Global Gateway and these sustainable energy initiatives today as they were a month ago, given the fact that now the entire foreign policy establishment of every country in the European Union and the European Commission itself now is not paying attention to Africa, they're paying attention to Ukraine? I think that's, a, that's an absolutely, absolutely essential question. And uh, the, uh, the, the difficult, um, difficulty is that no one can sort of look into the future. But the reality is that when we look at the Global Gateway Initiative, what it is is 
Um, it's not 150 billion uh, euros of public money that has been committed. It's it's a scheme to try and leverage private uh, private finance to uh, to Africa. The reality is that um, the Ukraine war changes everything uh, in Europe and in terms of public policy making, the, the role of Europe, the role of Europe in uh, in, in European defence, the way that we uh, that it deals with um, uh, with mobility, refugees, all of the taboos from the past are uh, are now being being scrapped because this is an absolutely existential crisis for uh, for Europe today. Now, I think I think the energy. Um, the energy uh, domain is is so incredibly central uh, to what is happening now, and and what we see is just this week, uh, EU has started announcing plans to uh, rapidly wean itself off uh, off Russian gas. And how is it going to do that? It's going to do that by one trying to diversify its supply in 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 the in the short run which is buying liquid natural gas at uh, liquefied natural gas at, at probably extremely high prices to fill up storages uh, to ensure its uh, its energy security but also by front loading uh, the investments in renewable energy uh, at home and that means uh, also trying to steer and 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 using its its sort of using its 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 public uh, public money to try and steer private investment into uh, towards accelerating uh, renewable energy development at home now the risk is indeed uh, when when you're looking at sort of the the schemes like the global gateway initiative um, all of the discussions and announcements at the uh, at the uh, at the EU AU or uh, EU AU summit is that that the momentum for uh, for all of this this African business is is going to deflate. Um, the reality is that uh, it, this is already affecting uh, affecting European economies in in a, in a very big way, um, and and. I, I would expect, and I, I think that's already happening, to to see a Europe that becomes uh, becomes a bit more more inward looking, and and that will also have an effect on um, on the private private finance flows. Um, even if even if um, you can say that that the the sort of the public uh, public funding and the grant funding and 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 things that 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 has have been fixed in the budget. Um, and allocated to to African uh, countries are, are going to remain r- relatively fixed. The reality is that that the whole scheme is really built around uh, trying to encourage this outward look um, for European businesses and European private finance, and that is, is is likely going to change. So you know, in the report, you mentioned that that on the one hand, um, Chinese companies have built a significant part of of renewable kind of infrastructure, renewable energy infrastructure in Africa already. Um, but at the same time, you also say that that many of these companies find like they they, they kind of they, they don't enjoy kind of participating in some of the the kind of tender processes and the the kind of comp- the competition between firms in order to get the contracts and and that is one of the factors that kind of keeps them out out of 
or that, that keeps them from doing as much of that work in Africa as they could be doing. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about about some of these kind of what are some of the barriers to to Chinese you know kind of renewable energy provision in Africa um, or to the barriers to ramping it up very rapidly, considering how much renewable energy China is actually building at home. Yes, I, I think that's a that's a really good question, and there's certainly experts that that know uh, a lot more about this uh, than than myself. But just just simply put, I think it, it again it links to to how do you how do you build up uh, renewable energy based uh, energy systems, and how do you scale them uh, scale them up? I, the more traditional fossil fuel or, or nuclear energy um, based energy systems are are so structured around a relatively limited number of um, very high capacity uh, capa- capacity power plants. When you're shifting towards renewable uh, energy, it is a lot more um, to modular uh, based on on smaller uh, smaller scheme, smaller scale power plants, different uh, different levels of capacity uh, as well. And so the way that that in some some uh, African countries the start of that um, expansion, including in South Africa, has, has happened is by uh, moving towards sort of liberalized systems where you have uh, where you have auctions for uh, for re- renewable energy um, sort of independent power uh, power producers now the 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 traditional approach to large scale uh, infrastructure investment in in general um, from from chinese uh, chinese sources has been uh, to go through the the bilateral um, I say the bilateral channel, direct deals uh, with governments, uh, to a large extent, um, sort of uh, financed with uh, with sovereign debt or, or or sort of very very much sort of centralized uh, ways of uh, ways of working, and that is a, a sort of quite is not ideally adapted toward uh, to. That sort of more modular IPP based uh, based energy sort of scaling um, scaling system. Now that is that is not to say that 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 Chinese uh, Chinese finance is not going to going to find its way. I think one of the things that we try to what well, we try to put in the paper because when we when we deal in in Brussels we we, we deal a lot with. Um, with European member states and uh, European institutions, and and there's often, I'd say, quite quite simplistic views on uh, on how China operates uh, operates in Africa. And one of the things that we also try to uh, bring out in the paper is that when you look at the way that 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 Chinese investment comes into into African countries, it's also it's not monolithic, and it's also uh, you know, the, the Belt and Road Initiative. It's a living and and it's a learning uh, a learning policy. So so none of this is 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 constant. And and in a way, what you what you're seeing is that that is a learning curve also for uh, for sort of Chinese uh, Chinese construction companies to try and and, and better adapt to uh, to the opportunities uh, that are there. Um, so I think I think that that's sort of one of the one of the things that that. That we really try to to bring out in the paper that it's it's e- even though if if you look at it in, in in very simple terms you do see business models that um, are are in a way that 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 
can look as if they're uh, as if they're completely incompatible or, 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 or targeting completely different things. Um, in reality, you're dealing with uh, with businesses that are driving uh, policy decisions, uh, and and these will go also where where opportunities are, and and just in link linking that to sort of a, a, a fairly clear move towards uh, sort of a fairly clear policy move towards uh, towards greening finance is uh, likely in the in, in the coming coming years going to, to quite significantly alter the way that, that, that I think Chinese investors uh, operate in Africa. It's interesting that you mentioned about the simplistic narratives that are used to frame the Chinese in Brussels about Chinese engagement in Africa. And I think the same applies in Washington as well. And it's seen through a geopolitical prism. And we heard that again, going back to Ursula von der Leyen's unveiling of Global Gateway Initiative, it was very much framed as an alternative to China, much the same way that B3W was seen and is presented as an alternative to China. A part of that is the implication that the Chinese are building fossil fuels and dirty uh, energy. It, it turns out, actually, according to the Green BRI Finance Institute, Chinese funding for energy initiatives in Africa are now more green than they are fossil fuel. So that's just the reality is a little bit different than some of the perceptions but I guess I guess my question is whether or not the Europeans are, are really serious about this and the point of mobilizing private capital is going to be very, very difficult. Forget about the Ukraine war. It is it was difficult even before the war to mobilize capital. And and again, how much of what we hear from the Europeans is actually going to materialize, again, independent of the war, and the war does complicate things, but given the fact that if they haven't done it to date, it's all aspirational right now. Everything that they're talking about is aspirational. We're going to do this. We're hoping to get business involved. We're not going to mobilize all public funding. We're going to get funding from lots of different places. That's a lot of ifs. That's a lot of ifs. I mean, the aspirational is great, but, you know, will it happen? I mean, that, that's the, that's the million-dollar million question. I think one of the things that that we see I and mean, just to start with with your um your bit about sort of the the geopolitical fears that are now more and more permeating into into european uh, policy statements and 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 I very much agree on I mean, the the global gateway initiative it was was presented as uh, this is our alternative offer uh, to the world, uh, trying to counter Chinese uh, sort of Chinese um, uh, prominence in, in in many parts of the world. But again, I mean that that was referring to um, I'd say this this image of uh, of of a past uh, China and, and and past Belt and Road. So uh, that to begin with was was very. Um, very accurate. I also think that in terms of uh, the way the EU and and and, and some EU member states um, to sort of structure their diplomacy and the diplomatic narratives around that isn't isn't necessarily uh, very helpful. And I think in part also what you see with the, the Global Gateway Initiative, this sort of idea of of, of, of coming up with big numbers uh, that EU. Uh, will or will not be able to uh, to mobilize. It's in a way it's, it's trying to emulate uh, what what others are doing, even if uh, the EU doesn't necessarily have the same 
sort of systems and uh, and mechanisms in place to actually make that uh, make that happen. And and I think in in my view, it's it's this is not necessarily helping uh, helping Europe's case uh, abroad or helping Europe's credibility uh, as an external uh, external investor because as as you see say indeed it's a lot of it is aspirational um, whereas I do think that there's a learning a learning curve on on the European side as well I mean this has happened before right? this idea of we are we're, we're going to uh, sort of leverage uh, 40 something billion uh, billion euros. Uh, using um, uh, a much smaller uh, amount of uh, public funding and, and uh, in the form of guarantees, etc. I think there is a learning curve um, in in that the EU is trying to be more realistic about how uh, how it does that. But at the same time, right now we're sitting uh, in Brussels and lots of different uh, organizations are, are are asking the question: How do you how did you calculate this one hundred and fifty? Uh, billion figure, and the answers are, uh, are are simply not not there. Which is ironic, of course, because part of the criticism from Europe is the lack of transparency in Chinese financing, right? So there's a certain degree of irony that the Europeans are not being forthcoming on how they're going to finance this. I don't know. It just struck me as a little bit funny. No, it, it, it is funny. And I, I think it's also it's part of EU as as this sort of geopolitical actor, right? because they use the word geopolitics more than 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 I think uh, I think they actually do um, do it. Um, it. It's sort of this it's all it's all very recent. Right? EU is trying to. Um, Sort of present itself as a collective geopolitical uh, power, and I think, I think dip, discourse like uh, like this, uh, like like the Global Gateway Initiative uh, announcements, like the 150 uh, billion around the AU EU summit, are all part of this this sort of attempt at, at repositioning Europe, recreating the image of uh, of the EU abroad, but. Uh, this is also done in a, in a quite. So I don't want to say amateuristic, but it's sometimes sometimes done in an awkward way uh, because the EU simply does not have that that experience in uh, in, in in sort of selling itself uh, selling itself abroad. We're in this. We're in a situation where. Uh, with the, with the war in Ukraine, it shows the vulnerability uh, these big announcements because they're likely not going to hold up in the face of the current crisis. Uh, so one of the things that that we're trying to say as a uh, as a think tank and try to capture that a little bit in the uh, in the paper, but it's more, mostly part of uh, part of our sort of dialogue with uh, with different partners is is to say perhaps try not to focus so much on positioning yourself as opposed to the other or as opposed to the uh, as an alternative to to the previous alternative but try to perhaps focus on on those areas where you have a track record and where you can actually show past financial flows and past uh, past um, sort of results and and figures in terms of uh, in terms of finance i think i think if you if you actually look at, at aggregate figures of eu finance to renewable energy uh, across the continent and uh, mostly concentrated in a number of countries you do see that there's actually potential substance behind this 
but that doesn't necessarily come across as well if you if if you focus on uh, on on sort of a, a a more defensive narrative of Europe in Africa vis-a-vis China. How does the situation look on on the African side? Like you make clear in the report that there's massive demand for renewable energy in Africa. Um, I, but at the same time, I think one, one also frequently in some countries one has the, the uh, you know kind of institutional bias towards fossil fuels and also towards very conventional, old-fashioned kind of centralized grid kind of ways of thinking about energy provision. So, do you see some African countries kind of moving rapidly ahead in you know into kind of new thinking about what energy provision could look like? Um, yes, well, I, I think there's, there's both at, at the continental level, there's this sort of broad, let's say, sense that, that renewable energy offers, uh, offers opportunities for a, a lower, uh, lower carbon future. And then I think in a number of countries, including South Africa and parts of, parts of East Africa and, and, uh, and North Africa as well, there are sort of systems that are being, uh, Put in place for scaling uh, renewable energy, um, renewable energy developments. The reality is that in 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 most African countries, what you say first of all, uh, the the generating uh, capacity, grid capacity, etc., is is still so far uh, removed from uh, from what uh, what the needs are to actually be able to to power sort of a, a rapid industrialization or rapid economic um, economic development. So the, this is this, there's also a sense that that even if you look at South Africa, for example, where you have uh, where you have this 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 uh, this scheme, it still only counts for for relatively a small part of of, of the the total total generation generation capacity. So I do think that that there's a lot going on across the continent, and there's this potential to rapidly scale uh, scale this. But it also doesn't stop at just increasing your generation capacity. I think the the, the big challenge in in, in big parts of uh, parts of Africa are going to be to to really um, sort of make sure that this is fundamentally linked to structural economic transformation and clearly linked to sort of a rapid expansion of, uh, of productive capacity. Let's look forward. Towards the end of your paper, you talked about some recommendations. You've already mentioned some of them, uh, less focus on geopolitical competition. I like the fact that you said the geopolitical competition narrative is of little use in Africa. That is something that not only in Africa do we hear, but also here in Southeast Asia and in South America as well. Many developing countries say, we don't want to be a part of this. Don't make us choose sides. It's ironic because the great powers say, we're not wanting you to choose sides, but at the end of the day, they sit there and just rail on the other <laughs> obsessively. So, okay. So a less defensive narrative is one of your recommendations. Walk us through some of the other recommendations, uh, particularly for European stakeholders about more sustainable energy in Africa. So I, th- I think starting with the, with the less defensive, defensive nar- uh, narrative, I think, I think that really, really is absolutely essential when you look at, at sort of the diplomacy around it. And I think the, the AU-EU summit Sort of really, really showed how how this is still very, very difficult conversation. I think even even um, AUC chairperson uh, at the start of the summit uh, made it quite clear, saying 
Africa has a lot of uh, a lot of other partnerships, and these should also be respected. And they are in the interest of, uh, of of the Africa continent. And I think to to be able to advance the AU EU partnership, you does have to adapt the diplomatic narrative. And I think energy and infrastructure in general is a, is a big part of it because that is really where this sort of fundamental geopolitical competition narrative is played out and is often a bit inflated. Unfortunately, I don't see this going away anytime soon, because especially when, when, you, when you're dealing with sort of EU member states and, uh, and, and new institutions, that sort of thinking is still incredibly strong. Now, in terms of the, the other recommendations, I think one, one of them is, is, again, linked to how do you approach energy in Africa? And I think you mentioned the word uh, hypocrisy or at least perception of hypocrisy at the start of the podcast. And I think, I think that is, especially also with, with the fact that the EU is now going out and looking for new, uh, new sources of, uh, of LNG to try and replace what, what, is, what is coming from Russia, while at the same time, still being very dismissive about natural gas infrastructure investment in Africa that is going to continue to spark the sense of European hypocrisy around it. And I think I think big part of it is also because right now we Western finance is not necessarily already offering the alternative or ways for for African economies to leave uh, leave natural gas uh, gas in the ground and I think the imperative or the, the sense of urgency is so incredibly strong that um, I would say a more respectful approach to the way that African countries look at uh, look at sort of their uh, rapid industrialization and, uh, and and energy development is is also going to be needed We've seen through the years many people uh, making the making this obvious point that oh actually you know even though the the discourse around uh, around you know kind of Europe and China and their work in Africa and particularly in renewable energy in Africa the the discourse is all about competition but in reality it makes more sense for them to work together um, you know this is is kind of a cliche that pops up every now and then in in, in you know EU EU you know China Africa um, discussions. Um, and, you know, over the years, we've seen very little political will supporting that kind of cooperation. Um, but we've recently seen a, a new agreement between France and China about possible kind of trilateral cooperation. And I was wondering how optimistic you are about that kind of cooperation between EU and Chinese entities in Africa in, in, in renewable energy. Yes, thank you. That that's a good question. It's it's one of the questions that we that we also had when uh, when doing this research, and and obviously we're, we're talking about sort of massive amounts of uh, sort of different uh, different entities at different scales that that are that are active. But it, one of the things uh, to bear in mind is that this idea of, of of competition, I think, is often much stronger in in some sectors than uh, than in others. So I think in 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 the area of of renewable energy or energy infrastructure, the possibilities for collaboration are, are actually quite uh, quite significant if you 
move towards this more convergence of business models. The reality is, of course, that China dominates the value chain of, of, of solar technology. So even just as a, as a technology provider, China is already incredibly present in, um, in anything that, that also uh, is, is done uh, by European companies. And I think that there's actually quite a lot of sort of at the company level, there's quite a lot of opportunities and uh, some degree of collaboration already taking place. Now, the difficulty here is that when you're looking at the finance and the way things are financed, the models are, are, are quite different. And, and that, in, in a way, also disincentivizes collaboration. I mean, it's, it's a cliche that's, that's often repeated. And I think we, we've repeated it ourselves as well in the, in the past but uh, there are opportunities, especially if you, look, if, if you look down at the company level. The paper is The Geopolitics of African Renewable Energy, European and Chinese Investments in a Global Green Transition. And it was published by the European Center for Development Policy Management and written by Alfonso Medania, Katya Sergeyev, and Inato Domingo. Alfonso, thank you so much for joining us and to shed light on this important topic. Again, absolutely fascinating just in the moment that we're in and how so much has changed just this year. But we're going to have to continue to look at the geopolitics of it. And your paper was a very big contribution to that. You're very active on Twitter and so is ECDPM. Can you do me a favor and tell the good people where they can find you and also your employer? Yes, thank you. Yeah, indeed, on 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 Twitter, you can uh, you can find uh, myself and all of the different researchers that that we have at uh, at ECDPM. Our website ecdpm.org is also an incredible resource. Weekly email uh, our subscribers with a selection of the things that we do. So, I would encourage everyone to uh, to subscribe um, as well. And and then in general, on on most social media, we are, are fairly easy to find. Well, we'll put links to all of ECDPM's social media and the website as well as. Alfonso, and your contributors, your collaborators on this paper. We'll put their social media links as well. Alfonso, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure to be here. Kobus, this paper is absolutely essential reading for anybody interested in not only the sustainability issue, but also the geopolitical issue. But it's clearly a paper that was written in 2021, or actually, let me say this, it's clearly a paper that was written in February or January of this year and not in March of this year. And the war has changed all of this. And that's why I'm just curious, and I was asking him a lot about what happens now. I just don't believe that any of the global gateway, any of the B3W is going to see the light of day. There was a tweet by Ronald Cato, who's a journalist at Euronews, and, uh, and he wrote on Twitter this week, you know, Global Gateway is dead. And I wrote in our newsletter, RIP Global Gateway, you know, question mark. But if the Europeans are going out to raise money now on the bond market for their own needs, the idea of them spending 10, 20, 30 billion dollars a year on Africa, it just, it doesn't add up because it's completely inconsistent with the past 30, 40 years. I don't know. I'm very skeptical of this. And to be honest with you, I'm absolutely fed up with the hypocrisy, not only from the Europeans and the Americans, but the Chinese themselves. 
all this garbage talk about sustainability and renewable energy and blah, 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 blah. And yet the Chinese themselves are rolling out one new coal-fat plant after another domestically. At the end of the day, it's like peeing in one-third of the pool. It doesn't really matter if China cuts off its financing for overseas coal if it's producing a lot of coal emissions at home. I mean, we're all on the planet together, right? So it just gets, it's exhausting to listen to this stuff. And I, I sympathize a lot with some of the, the, the energy ministers and other people in Africa who are saying, listen, we contribute so little to climate change. And the need here is so much to build energy and power and electricity to grow our economies. Fix your own sustainability issues first before you come and lecture to us. I, I know you have a different take on that. But honestly, when you see a country like Australia, that is the largest coal exporter in the world, lecturing other people on environment and sustainability, what? I mean, it's just insidious how these people have no sense of self-reflection. By the way, this paper and Alfonso's team, they didn't do that. So I think that that deserves a lot of credit. But the rest of the discourse, forget it. Yeah, I think the paper is incredibly useful in kind of in, in adding complexity and nuance to this entire field. But I completely agree with you. Like like a country like Australia, kind of like gassing on about uh, about sustainability, you know, kind of when they are so actively kind of undermining climate, like their own domestic climate transition. You know, kind of when like similar to the US, where where kind of what should be just just issues of of logistics and technology have become like pulled into this like ridiculous culture war. Um, you know, it's it's that that is is incredibly kind of you know you know just just really kind of annoying and 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 and, and not helpful at all um you know so so yeah so so i completely share that 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 view i, I think one of the one of the big problems i also see in global gateway is that um is that it, it seems like it's very difficult for European stakeholders, and I think it's also this is also true for American stakeholders to think beyond some kind of aid lens. You know, kind of, it's it's almost always couched in terms of like, oh, poor little Africa, we need to help it, rather than what you know, kind of what the, this report shows is like, oh, Africa is a massive economic opportunity where some people are going to get incredibly rich, um, and we should try and get a piece of that pie. You know, like it's, they're slowly making that transition, but not nearly fast enough, and. and and, and you know, kind of, and and I fear that that this is exactly the kind of the kind of thinking trap that's going to lead to the fall down of the global gateway. It's going to essentially be like, well, we need to look after ourselves. We can't afford to help Africa right now, you know. Whereas, like, the the real thing is like, you know, kind of, can your businesses make money? In that case, work in Africa, you know. Um, so, 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 you know that that I feel is, you know, that there's there's a there's a kind of a rhetorical trap that I think a lot of these this and the global gateway and B three W tends to fall into, and the Chinese have managed to evade that trap because they were all about making money in Africa right from the beginning. So that is what everyone is used to them doing now. Yeah, Vladimir Putin put a bullet in the back of the head of Global Gateway. I don't think it's coming back. I don't think you're ever going to see it. There's no possible way that they have the bandwidth to focus on war, rebuilding a refugee crisis, and to do a project as big as to take on the Belt and Road. You and I have been talking about this for years now, that if the United States and Europe truly devoted themselves 
to taking on the Belt and Road. That alone would be a massive initiative, an all-of-government initiative that neither the U.S. or Europe have proven themselves to be capable to do. That is, organizing their massive bureaucracies to be able to confront the Chinese in a meaningful way on something like Belt and Road. Now, throw in the largest crisis in almost a century, and there's just no way. It's just not possible. Well, the problem is, is that you know, it's it's the, the, this is this is the classic problem of of work that hasn't been done, hasn't been done, right? Like, why, like, like if you if you don't prepare for anything and then you hit a crisis, then then all of that work that hasn't been done ends up biting you in the butt right so so like like as like at the beginning you 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 listed you know kind of all of these different like you know kind of how dependent all of these different rich countries are on on fossil fuels and what that reveals is these countries the countries that we're used to thinking of as the most advanced in the world in reality they're actually really really primitive Right, and they really um, their economies are really primitive, and they really uh, when you look at, at 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 their energy mixes, they're essentially 20th century relics, right? That have that have kind of like zombied themselves into still being into in, in in these incredibly dominant positions in the in the world now, and you know, and the Ukraine crisis, which is essentially a relatively small crisis, right? Kind of like it affects it affects basically two countries, um, you know, kind of is like the way that that is throwing the entire kind of system into into crisis and at, at a moment when when we are already so far overdrawn on our carbon budget that that you know kind of that even a year or two's you know kind of additional carbon is the threatens to, to kind of pitch us over the cliff is just a just a, you know kind of a, a reminder that that in a lot of countries a lot of a lot of cases like what what the, the history of these countries you know kind of economic development a country like australia a country you know kind of like like a place like japan which you know kind of sits on endless amounts of geothermal energy none of which it uses and it, it manages to to you know kind of to make itself still in the 21st century completely dependent on coal like these countries are actually we're thinking of them as incredibly advanced and, and, and incredible economic successes but in reality when you look at you know at, at, at the work that hasn't been done they're all massive failures you know so so in that sense the the, the the very kind of the very concept of them as global leaders need need kind of very serious interrogation um, and you know kind of and 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 that all of that intellectual work none of that intellectual work has been done um, you know kind of and now we're running into this kind of massive succession of crises where you know kind of where it, it kind of it, it literally kind of threatens the future of humanity on the planet um, and you know kind of and 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 you know countries like Africa that that has almost no complicity in 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 this problem ends up being preached to about about the use of natural gas you know so it's just yeah. all really really ridiculous yeah i mean I'll, I'll disagree with you slightly on the impact of russia ukraine just being only two countries because clearly a lot well, of i mean it's obviously Europe spilling are, over into many more exactly in that sense but to your point though about how the global north countries are, are are deeply embedded in 20th century technology in part it's because it's the state themselves that are doing this i mean you look at statoil in norway one of the largest oil producers in the world that is literally the government of norway and again the idea that norway is telling anybody about sustainability and renewable energy while at the same time they're pumping out more hydrocarbons than anybody else it's incredible incredible Again, the duplicity of all of this. And it's just like, I, I just, I can't get past it. But I, I just think at the end of the day, we're going to have to evaluate the US and the Europeans on what they do, not what they say. 
let's see the proof points on the ground for things like B3W and Global Gateway. And until we see those proof points, forget about it. It's whatever. It's just vaporware. It's just another kind of talking point in the own the libs, own the Chinese kind of rhetoric that that's now kind of standard in, in, in the Washington and Brussels. We need to see proof points to evaluate them. And that's why in this paper, I thought, again, they're trying to guide the conversation that's saying, don't frame this in the context of great power politics. And at the same time, just one very quick point before we leave. The reason why what we are doing every day in tracking the Chinese in Africa is so important is because now the Americans and the Europeans, at least at the foreign policy level, have taken their eye off of Africa. And recently in our newsletter, we've been tracking these tiny little announcements that would never make big news anywhere. There was an announcement a couple of weeks ago that Djibouti, Ethiopia, and China have launched a new sea-to-air logistics corridor for supply chains. Okay, just a normal business story. There was also an announcement in uh, Tanzania that uh, Sinotruck, a state-owned Chinese truck company, has just opened up a new assembly plant. Okay, by itself, these stories are just, yeah, they're, they're not that big. What's interesting is they're happening every day. And while the Americans and the Europeans have diverted their attention and their energy away, every single day we are tracking tons of these little tines of stories. And what happens is after a year or two, they add up. In a year or two, when hopefully the situation in Ukraine calms down a little bit and the attention then diverts back to places like Africa and the global south, they're going to say, oh my God, what happened? The Chinese are doing all these things. And that's the big thing that I keep trying to remind people in Washington and Brussels. Don't take your eye off the ball. Because if you're really out to compete with the Chinese, guess what? You got to compete with the Chinese because they're on the ground. They're making deals. They're still doing stuff. I mean, we have a newsletter that is so full every day. We can't include all the information in it. As I've said many times, we could not do the U.S. Africa project. I don't think it would be possible, honestly. I just don't think there's be enough news. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think we could. Yeah, but, you know, kind of, and I think one, one, one thing this report really shows is that all of this, like governments can say all kinds of things, but all of these, like the real action is at the firm level, you know, and, and in that sense, like these, like putting together these little news points on a daily basis is the only way to keep tracking it, you know, and, and there's a lot, there's a lot happening. There's really a lot happening. It's amazing how much is happening. So I don't know how anybody who's interested in this topic can follow what's going on as much as we know. Again, we have five people now full-time looking at this, and that's still not enough. And so if you want to follow what's going on, I really recommend that you give us a try, chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. You'll get the newsletter every day. You'll get the site. We've got almost 4,000 articles on the site. By the way, we're in the process of rebuilding our search function on the site, and so it's going to be a lot easier to search we're spending a lot of money on building a new search tool, so it's going to be even more helpful for researchers like Alfonso and others. So give it a try, 30 days. Give us an email if you have any questions. You can reach me, eric, at chinaafricaproject.com, and you, you know we can talk through anything. I'd love to hear what you have to say, but I really recommend it. It's not expensive. Seven bucks a month for students and teachers, $15 a month for everybody else, $149 a year for normal subscriptions. So we'd love for you to join our community of readers around the world. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Cobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. Until then, 
I'm Eric Olander, and for Kobus Van Staden, we'll be back again next week. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com.